and welcome to episode 20 of the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. If you like the podcast and want to help other people find it, we would really appreciate that, and you should please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to contact us, send feedback, or get more news and information about the show, follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. To learn about past episodes or leave comments or find out more about our guests, find us online at techdoneright.io. We really love getting your feedback and answering questions. Today on the show, we have Jeff Casimir and Mark Guzdial. Jeff is one of the originators of the Developer Bootcamp School concept and currently runs the Turing Academy in Denver. Mark is a professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology, where his research interest is in computing education, which I'll let him explain later on. Many, many years ago, Mark was my faculty advisor for graduate work in educational technology. The three of us talk about boot camps, teaching general computer skills, complexity, abstraction, and context, and Microsoft Excel. Uh, it's even better than the conversation I expected with the two of them. It's a great talk with two people who are really passionate about teaching. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. So hello. Uh, on the show this week, I have two guests. I have, we'll do this in alphabetical order. I have Jeff Casimir. Do you want to introduce yourself, Jeff? Hi, I'm Jeff. I'm the executive director of the Turing School in Denver, Colorado. And I'm Mark Guzdial. Uh, hi, I am Mark, a professor in the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech, and my research area is computing education. Yeah. Do you want to say what you mean by computing? I think people are familiar with computer science education, but I don't think that's quite what you mean. So Yeah, I mean a little bit broader than that. Here at Georgia Tech, we have a college of computing, and the idea is that we're interested in computer science and the implications of it, how computer science interacts with other disciplines. So for me, computing also includes things like information systems and information technology. People interested in computing education research look at how people come to understand computing, the computing that they use in their lives, and how we can make that uh, understanding work out better. So a big part of what I look at is how people come to understand programming, since programming is particularly important for non-software developers. For every professional software developer, depending on the study you look at, there's somewhere between four to nine end-user programmers. So people who need programming as part of what they do, but not necessarily to be professional developers. So like people who write scripts or Excel spreadsheets or things like that? More lower level than just make the spreadsheets and make the macros, do some programming, uh, SQL queries. A lot of people do SQL queries where they're manipulating variables and don't realize that they are. I actually just interviewed somebody who came to development because she had been a She'd been working in customer service and became the person that everyone else relied to to do SQL queries into their customer database. Uh, and then she realized that she really enjoyed development and became a professional developer. I've heard it said that uh, Microsoft Excel is the world's most popular IDE, which I think is like a funny and sad idea. Yeah. I also, I don't think either of you have met the CEO here who is an Excel wizard and, and does things with Excel spreadsheets that probably should be outlawed. It's staggering. But yeah, you can do amazing things. I think Jeff's probably completely right. And it's also particularly scary when you think about the lack of error messages in Excel. And so there's these horrendous stories. Uh, Paul Klugman just did a New York Times piece, not just, it was like a year ago or so, about the Excel spreadsheet that uh, ruined all of monetary policy for the world. That a lot of the claims made about the needs for austerity are based on an Excel spreadsheet where they made a mistake and didn't include all the rows and columns in the range. 
See, now that is genuinely terrifying. <laughs> this is not where I thought we were going to go, and I'm already terrified. Microsoft Excel, you've ruined the world. But, and this was t- a totally other random thing about Excel that we're, we're digressing. We haven't even started yet. But one thing about Excel is it does internationalization. There's a thing about somebody who learned to program in Russian, uh, and he struggled with it, but his father who learned Excel in Excel, if you're using the Russian version of Excel, all the functions are in Russian. And then when you translate it and somebody opens it in English, it's all localized, the functions and things like that. So, okay. What I really wanted to talk to you guys about. So it's been an interesting summer, Jeff, for uh, boot camps here in Chicago with, uh, well, the, the, particularly the closing of Dev Bootcamp, which is in multiple locations. I say here in Chicago because I interviewed Dev Bootcamp graduates all, all the time. And also some, what's starting to become some research into bootcamp graduates and their skills and CS majors and their skills. And I wanted to talk to both of you from somewhat different directions about teaching development skills, teaching computing skills, and then, you know, my interest here, which is as somebody who hires uh, developers. So Jeff, do you want to talk about what your goals are at Turing, like as you've developed them over five or so years of teaching developer boot camps? So I did a traditional four-year undergrad degree. It was computer engineering, so like half electrical and half computer science. And I'll never forget, as I approached the end, we were in uh, March of 2003, and we asked one of our professors, we're having like a chat session, if you were us, what kind of job would you want to get? And he said, in my opinion, the only job you're prepared for is graduate student. And having spent four long years with a pretty, like, in my eyes, boring, like, monoculture of folks, the idea was, like, this is the last thing I want to do is keep doing this for two years. I think I learned a lot of valuable things in studying uh, a traditional computer science degree. And the majority of them I got alongside what I was asked to study, like the the interesting, valuable things I learned on my own or by accident. And so in uh, about 2011, conversation uh, with a friend was, if you had really smart people who didn't know anything about programming, how long would it take to turn them into job-ready software developers? And I hypothesized it was six months. He said, I have budget for five months. And so we're like, five months it is, let's go. And so now I've been iterating on that idea for, yeah, five, six, seven years. With setting up Turing specifically, I had a bunch of questions. One of them is when we look at like the education institutions, you know, like uh, well-known programs, like, like Mark's at Georgia Tech or MIT or Stanford or whatever, we take them for granted as though they've always been there. But the reality is that at some point, some stubborn people got together and started a thing and then kept it going. And so my kind of guiding question was, how do we create a school that lasts and lasts because it's providing value for its students, but lasts for a hundred years. And part of that is in our tech venture capital IPO world, I knew I didn't want to play that game. So we started as a nonprofit uh, where we couldn't be invested in, couldn't be bought or sold, couldn't IPO. 
and said, let's just focus on students and student outcomes and quality of education. And, and that's what we've been doing now for three long years. How does that compare either one of you with like the boot camp landscape overall? Like your program is different from some of the other programs. You know, there are a variety of them just in Chicago and around the country. What are some of the differences in your approach versus some of the other? Yeah. One of the fundamental differences is around time and scale of time. Uh, I think many programs have started with the question of how short a period can we train people before they can get a job? And our question was, how long can we keep someone before we think their best learning happens in the workforce rather than in the classroom? And that answer uh, is about six months. And we interject some breaks for them to recuperate a little bit. And it comes out to a seven-month program. So when we discuss program length, people often ask about, you know, why is this program 12 weeks and this one's 10 weeks and yours is 27 weeks? And the answer is it's 27 weeks because if I could, I would make it 52 weeks or 100 weeks. But uh, I think that our students are best served by leaving after 27 weeks. Your students, for the most part, are coming without having programming knowledge or developer knowledge in advance, correct? Correct, yeah. We actually prefer people not to have much experience uh, in folks that have kind of been the the basement hacker or whatever. They tend to have a lot of notions that we have to kind of unprogram first, and that's challenging. There are also lots of pathways for people who have some experience to be successful. We'd prefer to build the pathway for people with no no experience. So I love the model that you're describing, Jeff. Can you tell me when you say that you're you're a nonprofit so that you can last and last for a hundred years, which is like an unbelievably that's so non-Silicon Valley to think about 100 years as opposed to just the next quarter. How, how do you measure your quality of education? How do you decide that you're achieving that goal? Yeah, the whole concept around metrics is at once both important and incredibly cloudy, right? Do we look at graduation rates? Do we look at employment rates? The way that I feel success differs a bit from the way we measure success. So we're able to measure graduation rate. We're able to measure employment and the job titles of employment, time to hire, initial salary, all those kinds of things. And that's what we put down on paper. And the way that we feel successful or that we know that the core of the mission is working is to look at the students who are two and three years out and to see them in jobs that they're fulfilled, where they're well-paid, where they're uh, well-cared for, they're promoted and able to lead teams and so forth, if that's what they choose to do. And, you know, really turning to me is about economic empowerment more than it is about programming. Uh, although I've been doing it for a long time, I don't think programming is that great. Like it's just a, it's neat, but I don't think it's the greatest way to possibly spend your time in life. And we use programming as a tool for economic mobility. How do you get yourself into a career where you, yes, enjoy the work and also have a uh, strong income, uh, ability to work when and where, how you want to be well treated by your team. And if you're not like find a place that you will be, uh, the kind of privileges in the workforce that only the 0.1% of the world gets to experience. That's what we're trying to open up for people. I love that vision that that drives a lot of my work as well. A lot of my research is funded by 
the National Science Foundation's program in broadening participation in computing, that for the most part, the people who are in computer science are 30% of the U.S. demographic. It's mostly white and Asian males who are not disabled in any way. And the argument that we make uh, in the BPC program is that this is actually a social justice issue, that women not getting access to computing education, that African-Americans and uh, Latina, uh, Latino students are not getting access means that they don't get access to those high economic desirable jobs that you're describing, Jeff. So I think that it's a, it's a really important goal. Yeah, I think we're like super aligned on that. So like our, our vision statement of the organization is of a world powered by technology where the people building it represent the people using it. And it's sad to see how far we are from that. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I definitely see as, uh, you know, from my position of hiring is that the boot camp population and mass is a much more diverse and much more representative sample than the people that I see who are graduates of CS programs. Yeah, it's kind of compared. There are few CS programs that have succeeded in my eyes in creating like a diverse student body, right? So whether you're talking about higher ed or you're looking at the industry, you're looking at basically negligible diversity. And so doing better than that is not so hard. You know, like we, when you look at the stats, the, the stats that I see talk about like women in technical roles in the industry, somewhere around like 11, 14%. And in our student body, it's about 35%, which relatively speaking is great. And we feel good about that and is also still terrible, like still where's the remaining 15%. And so there's a lot of work to do to close that gap. Jeff, would you be willing to give us some actual stats on, for example, uh, I love your two to three years out. How do the women do who come out of touring school two to three years out? What is your graduation rate like? Yeah. Uh, so some of the interesting things we've tracked in the metrics with a bit of trepidation, you know, when you're in Excel crunching those numbers and you're like, I, I hope I don't find something I don't want to find. Some of the things I've we, we've looked at are like, what's the graduation rate among female students as compared to the general population? What's the graduation rate of students of color, of veterans, etc.? And what we've seen is that our female students and our people of color have a slightly higher than average graduation rate, which is super encouraging. Coming out, some of the data I've, I've looked at most recently shows our median time to hire overall student population is about 45 days. And for female students, it's about 37 days. And that jives with what I see in the job market, that there's junior hires are always going to be a risk, whether they have a great degree, a master's degree, or no degree in our case. People can come down different places on the issue, but I think there are a lot of companies that have decided that they want to put some of their risk-taking towards audiences underrepresented in tech. And that benefits our female students, I think, clearly. I think our female students have an easier time getting an interview. They don't have an easier time getting a job. Once in the job, we find that female grads are more likely to leave a job in the first six months. And that is a heartbreaking uh, stat, right? And, and I think there's a, 
complex, like ongoing conversation in the industry around pipeline and, you know, the pipeline of girls in STEM in middle school and in high school and so forth. And I think that's a real problem, but it's definitely not the whole problem. And we have a lot of work to do. I think as Google has well demonstrated for us recently, we have a lot of work to do to create environments that are inclusive, not just diverse. With respect to the actual skill. So here's what I see. All right. I have interviewed dozens of bootcamp graduates, some of which from programs like Turing, some from a variety of programs around the Chicago area. And what I see generally is a tremendous amount of enthusiasm. If they went to the right boot camp, a very strong understanding that they don't know everything, which is in and of itself, I think, pretty valuable. And a very, still very strong lack in a couple of skills that are really important in our environment, most notably like having worked on longer projects, larger projects, more complicated code bases. Like some of the stuff is very hard to get if you're a junior. Like Mark, can you speak to like what kind of skills acquisition is reasonable to expect in a three month, three month intervention or a six month intervention? Uh, no, I can't. Let me give you two answers to that. So for the first part, uh, I don't worry about trying to develop software development skills. So I don't know much about how to make good software developers. I'll tell you that one of the things that we've been focusing on is how do you take a high school teacher who wants to become a high school computer science teacher and bring them up to speed where the speed is not being able to teach the class, but feeling comfortable in teaching computer science at all. We actually have a bunch of evidence that you put teachers through a one-week professional development and afterward they may not be interested in ever doing this ever again. We've been developing an online electronic book, and I can tell you a lot about why we want to do an electronic book versus like a MOOC. And our teachers are spending 20 to 30 hours in the book, and they come out afterwards saying, you know, I think I could do this computer science stuff. I'm ready to sign up for a professional development now, which for me is a really important goal, which is way less than being a professional software developer. But it's a necessary prerequisite. Sure. The second answer is that the, the challenge that y'all are talking about, and I've lived in the South long enough, I'm allowed to say y'all, I, I got my, my passport stamped, is really fundamental to all of computer science. These histories of computer science, in particular this one, uh, Nathan Ensmenger, um, The Computer Boys Take Over, which talk about how people in the 50s and 60s decided, hey, we need a lot of developers. It's going to take a lot of software developers to make all the things that we want to make. And then realized, wow, most of our developers aren't any good. Nate Ensmenger goes so far as to suggest that software engineering was invented because we realized we had to figure out how to make software with a lot of particularly cruddy developers. If you have a lot of really great developers, you don't need a lot of them to be able to do cool things. But when most of your developers are mediocre, you need some more formal processes to make sure that you reduce errors and reduce time to completion. So computing education of developers is actually a fundamental issue of software engineering and computer science. In, in between teaching middle school, high school, and, and doing this developer training thing, I was, I was doing corporate training, and it very much resonated with what you're saying, Mark, 
in that I would go into some teams and they were excited, fired up, smart folks doing great work and able to just like give them a couple new tools to work with. And a lot of teams that I went into were just unengaged, didn't even have strong fundamentals. There were times I was working with professional developers who typed with two fingers, you know, and it was just like, wow, if you're talking about can these people with a bunch of enthusiasm and a bunch of gaps, can they beat out this person? Yep, they sure as hell can. Yeah. So can I ask you, Jeff, a more meta level question? Yeah. I love the image of you came out of undergrad and asked, what am I uh, equipped to do? And they said, you could go on to grad school. Why not fix traditional computer science? Yeah. And then which raises a bigger question is, what should a computer science degree be about? Certainly not to make everyone ready to go to grad school, but I wonder if it necessarily should be about making everybody a great software developer. I think there are complexities like on the meta-meta level. We have cultural complexities with like adolescence, right? And having worked with a lot of 18-year-olds and 20-year-olds and 25-year-olds, it's clear to me that at least in the U.S. that we've perpetuated adolescence into the early to mid-20s. And thereby college creates a necessary like greenhouse for you to just grow up. Right. And it's unfortunate that we try and do some of your best learning at the time that you're also like essentially still acting and living like a child. And I think that's where we see such a difference. And, and I'm sure like your colleagues doing the work every day see the radical gap between folks who are showing up to show up and get a degree and the people who actually have the maturity to pursue meaningful academic study. So with that as like background, I think, you know, there, there used to be a period uh, two or three years ago when folks in my training industry would say things like, oh, we're disrupting higher education. Higher education's over. Anybody who goes to college is an idiot. And I like to ask people, oh, you didn't go to college? And their answer was usually, oh, yeah, I went to Stanford. And it was like, okay, so you're telling other people not to go to college with that Stanford degree hanging out of your back pocket. Like that's not genuine advice right there. I think we need computer science to be science and we don't need computer science to be building web applications and building mobile applications and so forth. From my perspective, I mean, my experience, which admittedly is really old was that was that attempts to change the computer science curriculum to make it be more job training received a fairly fair amount of pushback and i think understandably so i I agree with computer science i I would say that like as the tooling has gotten better and better the amount of things that you can do as a developer without really understanding computer science has i to my mind increased like the the reach of something that you can do without a deep understanding of computing uh, has increased until, you know, the exact moment when you realize that you don't understand as much as you think and you're suddenly, you know, everything is falling apart or is super slow uh, and you don't quite understand why. And at that point, it's nice to have somebody who knows a little bit more formalized computer science. I think of it sometimes in parallels to doctors and medicine and like I want Mark's team training up brain surgeons and I'll train up doctors to work at the minute clinic and the uh, the first aid place down the street where I can get in and out in, in 25 minutes with a cast on my three-year-old. And some of those folks will 
get into that work and decide, hey, this is the thing for me and I want to continue and get a grad degree in computer science or a doctorate in computer science. And there's so much value in those like deep studies. It's just not what a lot of people need to be successful in the industry. So let me ask a, a third, uh, take a, a third direction off of the model that Jeff just gave us. Uh, there's the brain surgeons and there's the ones at the Minute Clinic. And then there's the kind of first aid that the park ranger needs to know yeah. or that every kindergarten teacher needs to know. I, I think that that's a really interesting question that because computer science, some software development skills are becoming really important because computing is becoming really important. And I'm curious, what do you think about boot camp for the people who need computing as part of what they do? Do you all know Greg Wilson and his software carpentry work? No, it doesn't. I don't think so. So uh, Greg is in Toronto, and he was working with scientists and engineers, and increasingly computation is an important paradigm in the way that scientists and engineers work. What does someone who has a uh, degree, maybe multiple degrees in science and engineering, highly successful at what they're doing, but who now needs to use computing as part of their work, what do they need to know about computing? And it's more than just Excel. Um, they need GitHub. They need Scientific Python. They need R. But they certainly don't need a lot of theory. At least they don't want a lot of theory. They want enough to be really successful as computational scientists and engineers, not as software developers. But there's this really interesting intersection, right? All of those folks, for example, one of the first things they need to know is GitHub because they need libraries, they need to be able to store versions, they need to be able to get at data that's being stored in GitHub and put new data back there. We train everybody. We train project managers on GitHub here, like everybody. like it's. Yeah, so how do you teach that stuff? It's not software development per se, but there's a lot of software development skills there. Right. And, and GitHub's an interesting example there because on the face of it, it looks really like, I, I want to say it looks simple, which is unfair, but it, 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 there's a lot of hidden complexity there in the sense that GitHub makes a lot more sense if you understand Git and Git makes a lot more sense if you have a mental model of a file system that you can use. I'm still waiting for Git to make sense. No, go ahead. I'm right there with you, Jeff. That is fair. That is completely fair. Git, Git has a, a very elegant internal model, which is completely obscured by a horrible interface. And how about I want to push or I want to pull or I want to branch? Yeah. I'm confused. <laughs> right. So, so we get to this point where here's like this entry tool, this tool that is a gate to all of these other tools. And in order to understand it, you almost have to understand there's just a huge chunk of computing that you need to understand. It's not necessarily computer science, but it is like, what's a file system? What is, uh, you know, it's got a fair amount of jargon uh, attached to it. And what, what I see in practice is, I mean, I even see this with professional developers in Git. I see it with myself in Git is a ton of cargo culting, mm -hmm. right? Uh, classically, so cargo culting is the idea that you are just copying something that you saw work for somebody else in the hope that it will work for you. And I certainly see that in how people uh, use Git or their text editor or all of these things that are sort of in some ways like foundational tools just to interact with the technology um, that are very hard to understand. Isn't it necessary? I mean, just to work in what we do. I don't know what processor is currently inside of my MacBook. I don't really know all the complexities of the compiler that I use. 
because of what we do. Isn't there a layer, a layer where we say beyond this, the, the demons lie and I'm not going to go there? Right. Well, that's kind of interesting, right? I don't, I don't know the details of the compiler. I, I write in languages where I'm super isolated from compilers. <laughs> I write Ruby. What's a compiler? Mark, who was around when I learned graduate level compilers, is probably cringing internally. Nah, I'm right there with you. But, but there's this sort of interesting thing where compilers, if, the, if you have this model, like compilers and, and that kind of thing are sort of the core technologies that we interact through these interfaces of text editors and GitHub and things like that. But at the edge of it, the things that we need to do just to interact with the technology in a way that we want to use it are themselves uh, very complicated, even simple, even like relatively simple programming languages that have been designed to be relatively simple, like in some ways Ruby there's a tremendous amount of incidental complexity that you need to pick up just to make progress. I think there's a important piece that, that Mark mentioned is about wanting to know how things work and being okay with the idea that like sometimes we don't want to, or maybe a lot of the time we don't want to. And I think to a lot of people in tech, that's almost like, Oh, how dare you? You know, I I've been learning lately. Uh, I'm refurbishing an old car, a 1977 vehicle and reading these message boards, figuring, trying to figure out what I'm doing. It is very much an experience of like, Oh, this is what it sounds like when you don't speak the language. You don't even understand there. I have to send photos to a friend to be like, what's the name of this thing? So I can Google it. <laughs> and I think in tech, like we need to accept that there are so many layers of, of abstraction now that even people who want to understand have actually somewhat uh, given in to the fact that like we won't understand all the things. So we pick some spectrum of, of depth that we're willing to understand. And I think the idea, Mark, that you were talking about with uh, the software carpentry and, and like teaching people to work with and manipulate data, that's a totally reasonable spectrum, right? And it allows them to do their jobs better, to do their creative endeavors better or whatever. And they don't want or need to understand how compilers work and they don't want or need to understand how Git works. They just want to get their code onto the website, right? And it's naive to me if we don't understand that that's okay, that it's like, it's cool. If we want to have a whole bunch of people using technology to build neat, amazing things and insights and so forth, it's going to mean that for a lot of them, it's not their thing. It's just, it, it's just a tool that they're using to get what they want done, done. I'm going to make a hypothesis, uh, Jeff, and you can tell me if I if, if if this is fair or not. That Turing School is a successful boot camp because you have students who want to become software developers so much that they're going to cough up seventeen thousand five hundred dollars in seven months of their time, and what you can teach is the developer depth. These folks can't go much deeper. They don't have much theory, um, but they do know how to be successful within that layer that you can focus on and teach in seven months. Is that fair? I would say from my this is Noel. From my perspective, they have uh, a significant amount of like face validity as developers. They can talk the talk, uh, which is not nothing. Mm -hmm. Like sure. they can express themselves. Yeah, I would say I don't know if it's too uh, like want want. My liberal heart is that like 
Turning School is successful because we deliver on our promise to students and our, our promise is to create like workforce ready skills that allow them economic flexibility and mobility and like life satisfaction. So what that means for them in software is that they typically are interested, I'll say by the time they graduate, they're interested at the beginning, they're not always that interested in software. Uh, but by the end, they see that they can use code to be creative and, and to like create things that matter. And I think that their ceiling is high. Our graduates create software more complex than any software I was able to create when I graduated with my four-year degree. Uh, and that's like, it's not even close. Uh, the majority of them create software that is more interesting and complex than anything I have ever done now. Is that because the libraries they use? That's a part of it. I would also say that it's a huge difference between the six-month, seven-month programs and the three-month programs. Like, I've interviewed people that have come out of Jeff's program, and I've interviewed people that have come out of three-month programs, and there's a tremendous difference in the, just the size of problems that they've tackled. And, and I think, you know, what we've what we've seen in our kind of casual research, I'll say, is that it, it seems to me there's a tipping point around 1,200 hours, 1,200, you know, good deep practice hours in programming, at which point someone moves from being kind of afraid of programming to feeling like I might not do it right the first time and I might not ever do it completely right. But given end time, I can solve problems with programming. And getting somebody over that hump, I think, is possible in four years, and I think it's possible in seven months. I don't believe it's possible in, in three months. One thing that I see from the bootcamp graduates in general is because a lot of them are career changers, they bring often some other skill which is actually often useful. Uh, a lot of times they have some more communication-focused background. Um, they've been in marketing or they've been project managers or they've been, I don't know, something that they're, even though they're running away from it, um, they still have some kind of skill that often makes them valuable in different ways than somebody coming right out of a standard computer science program might be, at least for me. I think part of it is just being a grown-up, you know, and like having five, eight, ten years experience in the workplace doing anything you're probably just going to be a better person than the average uh, recent college grad, regardless of your major or where you studied or whatever. And then there's also this like social complexity, Mark, like I imagine that in the work you're doing with, with trying to reach like a, a broader audience of, of computing education, you see that most people who have not been on a computer since they were 12, you know, like have not been programming for 10 years when they show up for undergrad or whatever, they've just have a, a richer life experience. And sometimes that's hardship. And sometimes it's just like, oh, I traveled the year world for two years, or I was in the Peace Corps, or I like did this difficult sales job for four years. And it's like all those experiences develop the person who then comes into computer science. And I worry a bit, you know, when uh, I have three kids and then talking about studying computer science and so forth, I worry a bit that if you lock into that as your thing when you're 14 and it stays your thing for eight years or something until you graduate from college, like you've missed out on a lot. So let me tell you, if it's okay with, with Noel, can I tell you a story about how we teach non-majors here? 
Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So in 1999, Georgia Tech decided that being an institute of technology, that computing was so important that every single undergraduate who came onto campus had to take a course in computer science. So engineers were, were on board, but that also meant uh, everyone in the College of Science, the Liberal Arts College, the Business College, the Architecture and Design College. So we started out in 1999 with one course because, you know, you have one intro physics, one intro calculus, we have one intro computer science. By 2002, the overall pass rate for the class was around 78%, which for an intro class is, is pretty good. But then if you break out and look at just the students in all of the programs in liberal arts, architecture, and business, the pass rate was less than 50%. Hmm. So we're losing about half the students every semester. Business students would talk about three-peating. By the third time you took the class, almost everybody passes. And that's when we decided that one course for everybody didn't make any sense. So the, the, we continued teaching the one course for computer science majors, and most of the College of Science decided to keep taking that one. We built a separate intro course for the engineers in MATLAB, a lot of engineering problem solving. I got the liberal arts, architecture, and business students. And I developed a way of teaching computing that we called media computation, where the students, they're doing the same kinds of programming, but where instead of walking through all the characters in a string, we walk through all the pixels in a picture and you compute a grayscale or you make a negative of the image or you get rid of the red pixels only around the eyes without changing the red that the person's wearing in order to be able to remove red eye. Um, we splice sounds, reverse sounds, change the frequency of sounds, and then do digital video special effects with videos. It's all the same basic intro CS, but it's contextualized. We called it contextualized computing education. I was thought of it because you talked about not been on a computer since the age of 12. It's sort of the opposite. These students have been on a computer all the time. They're at an institute of technology, but their focus is business or liberal arts, history, English composition, design, architecture. These folks haven't been programming a whole lot. Um, I mean, I still get students who walk in the door and will come whisper to me, I'm not a computer person. And the pass rate for the class now, so we started media computation in 2003 and 2012, I did a revisit to all of the classes, and most of which I have not taught, so it's not a, a mark effect. And the pass rate has been better than 85% for over a decade now. So part of this is about giving the students what it is that they want, what it is that they recognize computing is about. Computing is about digital media. Oh, wow, we're learning how to manipulate digital media. We're learning how Illustrator and Photoshop work. And so I think that it's actually kind of a similar story to what you're doing in the Turing School, except that my students haven't discovered any interest in programming yet. In fact, they're just taking this required course because we make them. Uh, many of them are juniors and seniors who are taking it as late as they possibly can. <laughs> but about 10% of the students decide to take up a CS major or minor afterward because they discover they like this stuff. I think the context is the easy to overlook and hugely important part there, right? When we talk about let's, uh, yeah, like walk through this string and manipulate the characters and so forth, when you have to explain first what a string is, you've already lost, right? It is no one can possibly give a crap about this problem, uh, especially as non-computer scientists. But when you can put it in this context that they like connect with and understand with, then all of a sudden you're solving a puzzle instead of just trying to answer an exercise in a textbook. 
Yeah, I think we do forget how completely abstract programming is, uh, especially for people who haven't been doing it for years and maybe don't really like dealing with abstractions on top of abstractions the way the developers do, which is a lot of people. It's funny that in some ways, when we try and strip down problems, like we're trying to make it simple, right? And it's just an array. And then we're going to do something to each element of the array or whatever. We've now, number one, we've told you you're dumb because we said the word simple and you didn't know what was going on. And number two, we're dealing with a problem that makes no sense to you whatsoever as far as like why you would want to do that. It shouldn't be surprising then when when 30% of them are like, uh, no thanks. Like, <laughs> this is not going to work for me. Jeff, how do you contextualize at the beginning of Turing? You know, uh, a lot of it is subtle. And so one of the advantages that we have of, of being a short program as compared to a four-year degree and the way our class is set up, we start a new group of students every quarter. So that means that at any given time, there's a group in fourth quarter, in third, second, and first. And a lot of the context is about observing the work of the fourth and third quarter students and seeing the things that they're able to build and they're working with, struggling with, et cetera. And that provides kind of the the context for the newer students to say like, okay, this is, I'm not sure exactly how these uh, arrays and strings and so forth add up to the things that that person made, but I want to do what they're doing. So I'm going to go ahead and, and, and figure out why arrays start at zero. So Jeff, you saw the, the New York Times piece because you sent it to us about the coding boot camps close. Uh, Audrey Waters has written a piece based on that. My blog post came out today, which talks about, about uh, Audrey Waters post, and also the new data from the paper that Kyle Thayer and Andy Coe at University of Washington just did. I am willing to t accept that Turing Academy is a successful boot camp. What's your explanation for the boot camps that are closing and the negative data that's in the Thayer and Coe paper? I uh, haven't read the paper, but I can speak to the industry and the challenges there. And it really boils down to the economics. I think there are folks who can do a back of the napkin calculation and say, you know, if we get N students and we charge them Y dollars every X interval, then we can pull in a lot of money. And that's somewhat true. It's just very expensive to run. So we as a nonprofit, like have the, the privilege, if you will, of just targeting cash positive, uh, just trying to break even, right? And the challenge to me is when organizations are set up as for-profits, when they've been acquired by these large for-profit uh, higher ed institutions, or you position your company to set up for that, that you want to be, you're necessarily taking a lot of oxygen out of the system. And Especially in tech, investors are looking for that 5 to 10x returns. And education, at least the models of education that we've seen so far, is not set up for that. I would argue it's unethical because to me, like student tuition should be spent in bettering the student. And when you have investors, it is uh, the fiduciary responsibility of the organization to benefit the investors. And that's money that should be going to students. So when you look at programs that have shut down, I think what you see are very committed educators, people who are fired up about teaching people to program and working as hard as they possibly can to do that. I think you see businesses that perhaps overestimated or uh, were hopeful on their ability to turn uh, revenue into profit. 
And when it became clear that you're only going to throw off a couple percentage points of profit in a year, you look at a company that you acquired for, let's say, $35, $40 million. If you're the big parent company and your two options now are keep this thing around and so it's throwing off a couple hundred thousand a year and is not trivially easy to organize and run or shut it down and shut it down without even selling any of the assets, shut it down. We can take our purchase price, write that down against our revenue and other divisions for this year and decrease our tax burden. And so that's where, uh, with the two significant organizations that have shut down recently, to me, that's why you don't see them selling the assets or selling the name or continuing it. It's just the experiment had run its course and it's not going to be 10 X profitable. So just pull the plug. Yeah, I also think to some extent there was when the camps when the boot camps opened, I think there was a backlog of people who wanted to switch careers but didn't know how. Uh and I think to some extent 5 years in, there's not as much of a backlog, so the the like consistent flow rate is lower than the initial uh burst, and I think also to some extent that's what you're seeing. Yeah, I'm not sure yet on the incoming side. I, I think there's still a tremendous number of people who are looking for workplace happiness, stability, economic flexibility. You know, so I agree that there was a pent up demand of people who knew that's what they wanted to do. They just didn't know how to do it. I think now there are still a lot of people who want that for themselves, but they don't have any idea how to get it. And so it's not a matter of like, Oh, there's a thousand students a year and they're going to be divided up by whatever programs are available. There are hundreds of thousands of people in the country that could be successful in programs like this. To date, the kind of top tier of developer training programs have trained like 8,000, 10,000 people. I don't think we've scratched the surface in terms of the potential. On the job side, there was originally a lot of enthusiasm. And I think companies were very willing to take risks and kind of hire somebody who seemed cool and fired up and they knew a couple things about programming. Sure, let's give it a shot. And what we see now is is more hesitation in the market than at any time in the past that companies have interviewed folks and it hasn't worked out or they've hired folks and it hasn't worked out. And now they kind of paint all non-traditional candidates with the same brush of like, we've worked with people like this before and it was a no, so you're a no. And now that's a, that's a challenging environment for our students to job hunt in. Jeff, can you say something about, we've, we've kind of talked about two different kinds of students, at least two that come into boot camps. People who have had a previous career and now want to make a change into software development or people who have decided to skip college and do an alternate path into software development. Do you see both of those camps which are more successful? Your your various success rates like grad rate, mean time to hire, which of those two do you see as being more successful long term? Yeah, the uh, so for us about 10 to 18% of students, it kind of varies like with our turnover being pretty quick. 10 to 18% of students will come to us without a college degree. And those students in the job hunt, the median time to hire is about 50% longer. And so there is definitely a disadvantage. I put an asterisk on it in my mind in that those folks who do come in at 18, 19, 20 years old 
I think it's just real hard for a 20-year-old to get a job, no matter what they can do. Because if I'm a hiring manager and I have two people with equivalent experience, right, two resumes where they each have been doing this thing for some number of months, and one of them has 10 years experience working in another industry, I'm going to take that person. I'm going to be like, maybe it's biased, maybe it's just reasonable. Uh, I'm going to take the person that knows how to operate in the workforce. And folks who are on the very young side is, it's not infrequent that we get questions about like ageism in tech. And I think ageism is a real challenge, but I think it is most pronounced at the bottom side uh, that folks are not that interested, perhaps with good reason, are not that interested in hiring 19 and 20 and 21 year olds where in, in some cases, like, as I'm saying, like, I think our society, we're collectively to blame folks have trouble with the basics of being in a job, much less the complexities of, uh, software engineering. Yeah. I've, I've interviewed very, very few under college graduate age bootcamp graduates. It might even be none. Yeah. I, that would be, that would be challenging. We've seen folks who do not have a college degree but have been in the workforce and are 25, 28, 30. Uh, their stats on graduation and, and job hunting is very similar to the overall population. I would say that the job hunt is still – the median is a little bit slower, but it's 5 or 10% longer, not 50% longer. That doesn't surprise me. It's kind of interesting though because one thing that I don't – almost never see now, which I used to see a lot is completely self-taught people who have never done a CS program or a boot camp. And that used to be a lot more frequent of people who would try to bootstrap themselves up. And even though there's a lot more material now, most of those people, it seems to me, wind up trying a boot camp. I think it's real hard to get your foot in the door if you're just kind of random person and you know some things about programming. If you don't have any network to rely on, if you don't have uh, the job coaching and like, how do you write these outreach emails and how, how do you like write blog posts that people want to read? And, and if you don't have any of that support, I think it's real tough to get in for a first phone call. So I'm about to get kicked out of a conference room, <laughs> um, which is a shame because I'm really enjoying this conversation. Do either of you have one? So let me just quickly, like, where can people reach you uh, if they want to learn more about Turing or Mark about your research? Um, Jeff, where can people reach you? Easiest is Twitter. You can find me at the letter J, the number three. So J3. Wow. You had to been get on pretty early. On Twitter at Guzdial or uh, Guzdial at cc.gatech.edu or Google Guzdial blog. There's not that many of us. There's not that many Guzdials. <laughs> uh, is there one? Do you have one final thing you want to say before we go off, either of you? I say, like, I appreciate your work, Mark, and I think there's so much to be done in this broadening the pool of people for whom programming is accessible. Like we can do a lot more. Thanks, Jeff. I am fascinated by boot camps and all the different ways in which we're going to make computing available to people in the future. I see boot camps as meeting an important need, but I see that there's a lot of those sorts of needs and we don't need a lot of different kinds of models. Yep. Yep. Agreed. All right. Tech Done Right is a production of Table XI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. You can find me on Twitter at Noel Rapp, and you can find Table XI at Table XI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded via wherever you get your podcasts. Please contact us, send us feedback, or you can find out about new episodes on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. 
TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right.